Here we go then, week five in our series, Walking with uh, Lions. The lions of Babylon have prowled all over the known earth, seeking anyone and anything to devour. And Nebuchadnezzar is the big cheese, and he leads the empire of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends have been relocated from their home in Jerusalem and placed by God at the very heart of this pagan empire. And today, the heat gets really turned up. I think it's important for us to remember the movement that underlines or undergirds the whole book of Daniel. The book challenges the direction that we take in our Christian lives. A lot of conversation about movement has been for the Christian to come out of the world and to become part of the church. There's nothing wrong in that. It's just not the whole story. So someone becomes a Christian and they're lifted out of the world to spend a little bit more time in the community of the church. Because they've come to Christ, they find it a little more comfortable in the church community than they do in the world community because they have a greater sense of identity and affinity with the church community rather than with the world. And so a little culture builds up around the church community made up of people like ourselves that do the same kind of things that we do that reinforce who we are and underline and undergird our identity. And so we talk about people coming to Christ sometimes in movements of leaving the world behind and entering or becoming part of the church. It gets its uh, most focused expression when we talk about people who have given their lives to serve the Lord, whatever that means, or to work in full-time Christian ministry, or to leave laity and become a, a clergy person. Still don't really understand all of those terms, but effectively we're saying that some people who really want to give their lives to God, well they take themselves right out of the world in order that they can put themselves full-time in the Christian community, and what a wonderful pleasure that is. And so again, the movement is from out of the world and into the church. And then we talk about mission, and we often talk about exactly the same movement, that what we'd like to do is to get them into the church. In fact, we sometimes talk about if we can get them into church on a Thursday evening for such and such, then maybe they'll come on a Sunday morning for something totally different. And that's been our kind of mission strategy, not us particularly, but generally that's been Western Church's mission strategy. It's all about getting them in. And if we can get them in to do something, then maybe at another time in the week we can get them in to do something else. And so the direction all of the time has been out of the world and into the church. The book of Daniel creates a very different movement. God ripped Daniel out of the church community, out of the Jewish community where his life and rhythm was around Jerusalem and around the temple and placed him right in the heart of a pagan world and effectively says to Daniel, I want you to love me, I want you to serve me, I want you to honour me here. 
and not there. And think about this verse that we know well, and you will have uh, held on to it in times of your Christian journey, I'm sure, and that's right that you should do so. These words were written by Jeremiah, and they were written by Jeremiah to the people that were in Babylon. And remember what we said about those people in Babylon, that God was saying to them through the prophet of Jeremiah, what I want you to do is to settle down, is to get involved, is to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city. And it's in that same chapter that we read these words, God says to that particular generation, not in the church, but in the world, God says to them there in that place, I've got plans for you. I know the plans that I have for you, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Now, there is a long-term fulfillment of that prophecy because, of course, they longed that they would go back to Jerusalem. And there is a long-term truth for us that God does know the plans that he has for us and one day we'll leave this messed up, grief-stricken, war-torn world and we'll go to a new heaven and a new earth. But just to think in those terms is to miss the heart of what these people were facing. For that generation, in that place, God was saying, I know the plans I have for you. So which direction is your Christian journey, Christian life, moving in? Which direction are you moving in? And sometimes when we think about God having plans for us, we immediately think of, well, he's got plans to take me out of this pagan place, to get me away from these non-Christian people, to take me out of this godless environment. What if that verse is to speak to us right amidst that pagan place and with those people that don't share the things that we believe in, and with those people who live a different kind of life to the one that we live in. That's the message of the book of Daniel. That for Daniel and his friends, it was not how can they survive in the world in order to get back to the comfort of the church. It was not how can they get through their day as fast as possible as a simple means to the end, so at the end of that they can do something more useful in the church community. What the call on Daniel's life and of his friends was that God might use them, that they might honour him right where he had placed them, which is not where any of us would have expected or perhaps chosen. Key thought, not how fast can I get out, but how fully can I get involved. So think about the places where God has put you. It's not how fast can I get out, but how fully can I get involved. Many can't get out, but do resist getting involved. Remember on week two, we talked about how easy it is for the Christian to keep on the edge of the culture because it's different and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. And so we'll we'll sit on the edges of what goes on in the world in order to scurry back into the safety of the church community. And one of the reasons that we do it is that we do not want to face 
what these guys in chapter 3 faced head on. We know that if we get involved, sooner or later, we will face the challenge of compromise. And here in chapter 3, there are lessons and truths to help us navigate, to help us understand how we can respond when the challenge to compromise comes to our door. And the first truth, the first lesson is this. Detect the real reality. Detect the real reality. Let's get our bearings. Nebuchadnezzar then hardly listened one iota to the dream that Daniel interpreted in chapter 2. He listened to the first bit about his, uh, the statue which had a gold head representing his reign. But he didn't listen to the rest of it because he was so full of himself. And because he was so full of himself, he thought, great, I'm the part that's gold. I will build a whole statue made of gold. What was Nebuchadnezzar saying? Remember the statue in chapter 2 was the statue that was crushed by a small rock that we'll come back to again. And there were successive empires. One would follow another, would follow another, would follow another, and then Jesus would come. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no, let's, let's build a statue that's all gold. May my kingdom, may my empire never give way to another one. May I rule forever and ever. He'd lost the plot. So he creates this statue and organizes a dedication ceremony for this gigantic statue representing the God of his reign, the power behind his reign, which was kind of synonymous with himself. Builds this massive statue, 90 feet tall, slightly taller than I am, and, uh, and uh, nine feet is it wide. So massive. And he has this massive ceremony in order to celebrate the launch or the unveiling, whatever you do, of this statue. And he invites all the magicians, all the astrologers, all the famous influential people, all of those people representing the arts and all the rest of it, all the different people. And we can read about it here in verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. This is a big deal, a big moment. So let's get all the good and the great in the country and let's gather them all together to be part of this unveiling ceremony. Everyone who's anyone is in the crowd that day. And they all think this is a marvellous thing to happen. So imagine, you've got all the great and the good, you've got all the best musicians, all the best entertainment, all the money that the empire can bring has been poured into this great ceremony, this great razzmatazz, this great display of everything that's going on. And what's being communicated to everybody is that this is a really big deal and everybody thinks that it's great. But notice, notice the sarcasm, even the humor in the writings of Daniel chapter 3. And let's ask ourselves, what, it, what is the sarcasm and why is it there? What's the humor all about? Here it is at the end of verse 2. And all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. He's set up. This is an image that a human being 
had simply made by himself. Nebuchadnezzar had simply had an arts and crafts day. Nothing more. Again, verse 3, it comes again. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had what? Had set up. So all the big cheeses are saying, what a marvelous, wonderful moment this is. The writer's going, no. No, no, no. Make sure you detect the real reality. This is nothing more than a Blue Peter model on a slightly bigger scale. Verse 4, then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is a wonderful great thing that is happening. This is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There it comes again. And it goes on, verse 12 and verse 14. Verse 14 is hilarious. Even on Nebuchadnezzar's lips... He's admitting that it's nothing more than something he has made. It's almost funny. He goes, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Is it true, you dummies, that you will not bow down and worship this Blue Peter model that I made this morning? You have to see what's really going on. The trouble is, in our culture, in our society, other people's behavior normalizes things that we would have otherwise said isn't normal. Isn't that the truth? So when all the great and the good in Babylon are going, this is a wonderful thing. We've got a new God today. We're going to worship him because this God is the power behind our throne. Everyone else goes, well, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And before long, the whole empire is bowing down to a Blue Peter model. And the writer in Daniel chapter 3 says, no, 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 no. You have to make sure that just because everybody's doing it, you detect the real reality. Just because everybody sees it one way, you make sure you see it the true way. When everyone is using coarse language or being sexually provocative or demeaning of the opposite sex, it's easy for that behavior in our workplaces, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, for that to become normalized. And when it becomes normalized for us, it's easy for us to begin to behave that way too. When people you work with use pornography or or just operate in a culture of fantasy where it's all okay and nobody gets hurt and everybody understands that it's just what normal people do. It's easy to begin to absorb that belief into your being. When the group that you are with gossips and runs other people down, it no longer seems so difficult for you to gossip and to run other people down. Everyone's behavior normalizes our own behavior if we are not careful. So Daniel chapter 3 is written in such a way that reminds us that just because the whole of the nation thought it was a great idea, just because everyone was behaving in that way, because they were all doing it, the real reality is this statue, however big, however tall, was just a human construct. Just an idol. Just something that the king had set up. And the joke's on the king. Meshach, Shadrach and Benigo, are you really saying that you will not bow down and worship this model that I have just made? Yes, you dummy. Of course I'm not. They didn't say that. 
So is there a counterfeit reality that you are in danger of accepting? Is there a counterfeit, something that seems true because everybody says it's true, because everybody acts that way, because even the great and the good people think that it's okay? People can have such influence, can't they? Especially in the media. Someone says it's, that's fine, that's the way I'm choosing, therefore it's normal for everybody. Something that seems so normal that we are in danger of assimilating with. Maybe everyone treats the boss where you work like she's the monster. Maybe she is. But because everybody treats her that way, runs her down, criticizes her decisions, it's so easy in your heart for you to do exactly the same. Detect the real reality. What's really going on? What's the real truth here? What are the lies and what is the truth? If we don't detect the real reality, we'll be in danger of slipping into compromise even before we know it. So, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego get grassed up because they were refusing to bow down. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold, here again, you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar searches them out, verse 13. He's furious. If you want to know why he's furious, listen to what we talked about last week. He's furious with rage. And he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, verse 14. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Verse 15. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, I think we should have one of those Sundays, don't you? be fantastic. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. We'll say no more about it. Funny, isn't it, how lies become quite undermining. If you're stupid enough not to bow down to this idol that I've just made, if you're stupid enough not to see what's really going on here, who's the laugh on really? Really humorous writing in so many ways. But if you do not do it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, that's quite a challenge, I'd say. That concentrates the mind. Makes you think a little bit about what you're choosing to say. When the challenge to compromise comes, secondly, do what's right not what's reasonable. Do what's right, not what's reasonable. We are masters of reason, logic, and reasonableness. How many reasonable reasons can you come up with as to why it would really have been okay just for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to bow down and get on with the rest of their lives? Talk to your neighbor. How many reasonable reasons can you give as to why, in the end, why don't they just get on with it, just a few moments, get it over with, then they can get on with the rest of their life. Go.
Okay, who's got a reason? Like a good reason? Much less hassle. Absolutely. Absolutely. They could still worship God. Sorry? Self-preservation. Yeah. Say that again, Margaret. Absolutely. Yeah, God could cope with it, couldn't he? Surely he's big enough. Ah, cunning. Absolutely. God had placed them there. How? Yep. They could do it and ask for forgiveness. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Top tip, folks. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. They've, so they've got this, he's got these positions of influence. Stay on good terms with Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to be able to influence Nebuchadnezzar, then you can't fall out with him, let alone be killed by him. Or you lose your influence, obviously. Surely God would know in their hearts they weren't bowing down. They're only going to bow down on the outside. And it was only an idol anyway. It's not a real God. So bowing down to a Blue Peter model wouldn't hurt, would it? Anyway. What about their families and friends, self-preservation? What about the, the, the people that they were responsible for? What about if they angered Nebuchadnezzar towards this group of Jews? What would be the impact on the whole of the Jewish population? Do what's right, not what's reasonable. I would have come up with a million reasonable reasons before Nebuchadnezzar had stoked the fire. Is there somewhere where you've settled for doing something that's reasonable rather than right? Is there somewhere where you've settled for doing something that's reasonable rather than right? In other words, we're fudging it. Look at what they say, verse 17. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Faith like that is the real miracle of this passage. It's a greater miracle than what we're going to read about in the furnace. And notice what they're doing. They're saying the faith that always does the right thing will further God's kingdom even if we can't control or are not sure what the outcomes will be. You and I want to make decisions naturally based on what we think the outcome will be. All our logic, all our reasonableness is around how we think things will play out and therefore the logic associated with them. These guys are saying, we will do the right thing. We have enough faith to leave the outcome up to God. Verse 18, even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There it is again. There is a huge difference They didn't ultimately have faith that God would save them. 
They simply had faith in God. Full stop. Period. Their responsibility was to be obedient, to do the right thing, and their faith was that they could absolutely leave it up to God to sort out what would happen next. No second guessing, no reasoning it all out, no telling God what he must do or bargaining with him. Faith in God. So when challenged to compromise, they decide that faith is never futile. Faith is never futile. They'd already decided that if they did what they had to do to honor God, God was big enough and more than able to sort everything else out. God could be trusted to do what God would do, and in the end, that's where they would settle the matter. It's faith a bit like Job, amazing phrase in in Job chapter 13. Though he slay me, Job said at one of his lowest moments, yet will I hope in him. Even though I can't see the outcome, even though I don't understand the outcome, even though I can't reason the outcome, even though the outcome doesn't make any sense to me, if God is doing it, then I can trust him. So if they died in the fire, they would have honored God to the very end, and they were absolutely convinced that that was enough, and that God could do whatever God would do for his kingdom purpose. If they survived and God saved them, then exactly the same would happen. God would be honored and God would get to do what God wanted to do. Faith in God. It's a powerful thing. A very powerful thing. Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 6 and ends in chapter 7, he offers this amazing testimony just before he dies. And he's murdered for his faith. He doesn't survive the flames. Different metaphor, I know. He doesn't survive the stoning. He dies. But his death sparks the explosion of the gospel. Now, did Stephen die because he had less faith than Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? I don't think so. They both had faith that God will do what God will do. And because God is loving and kind. And because he can be trusted with today and tomorrow, because he knows the beginning of the end, because his purposes are bigger than our purposes, because he sees the things that we cannot see, because he knows things that we do not know, then we're called to trust God, full stop. And so the church exploded into life in so many ways after Stephen's death. But these are the kind of things that you have to decide in advance. You can't decide... That faith is never futile right at that moment of your faith being challenged. Because you won't make the right decision. It's a bit like you can't decide that you will save yourself for marriage when it's late at night and you're in the arms of your fiancé. That's not the time to make the decision. Because you probably won't make a very good one. And so there is a sense in which for these guys, they knew straight away what they were going to say to Nebuchadnezzar. They knew straight away where their position was. They would do what's right, not what's reasonable. 
because they decided that faith in God would never be futile. However it plays out on the human uh, 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 stage, however it plays out in worldly, earthly terms, it will never be lost in terms of God's purpose. If you haven't resolved in advance that faith is never futile, you won't make that decision when your faith is under pressure, or at least you'll make it a lot harder. Then lastly, when challenged to compromise, discover Christ is in your crucible. Discover Christ is in your crucible. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar with furious, with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, his attitude towards them changed. He'd been loving and kind up to then. (laughs) He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing fire. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing fire. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 23, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who is the fourth person in the fire? Talk to your neighbor. Who do you think? Jesus, God, it's grey and fluffy, sounds like a squirrel, but the answer is probably Jesus or God. (laughs) Why do you think it might be God or Jesus? Tell me what happens in Daniel chapter 2. It's awkward, isn't it? You see, you feel awkward, it's way more awkward for me. So the big statue, what, what destroyed the statue? Stone, what does stone represent? Uh, what would the stone do? Set up a kingdom that would last forever. So, pretty good guess it could be Jesus. And we're in church and it's a Sunday. So it's probably Jesus. I can't prove to you that it's Jesus. I think it's Jesus. It's got Jesus written all over it. Because Jesus, no play on words here, Jesus rocks up when you're in trouble. (laughs) See what I did there? Daniel chapter 2, rock, flick. Jesus rocks up when we're in trouble. Christ was with them in their crucible, literally. Crucible, literally a container that you heat things up in. And Christ is with you in your crucible, which means a time of testing or trial. They discovered Christ in their crucible. Stephen, who didn't make it through the flames, also discovered Christ. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. That's heard what Stephen's testimony was. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing 
at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There is no greater gift than Jesus and Christ in your crucible. Daniel and his friends, more than likely, knew the words that Andrew used earlier on from Isaiah. Certainly knew Jeremiah. Odds on they were familiar with Isaiah's words also. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Have you discovered that Christ is with you in your crucible? Honestly, today, do you know that he's there? Have you looked up to heaven and seen what Stephen saw? Have you looked around the flames that feel like they're engulfing you to discover that you're not the only person there? Nebuchadnezzar, for all his outrageous madness, was clever enough to count how many people were in the fire. Are we smart enough to count how many people are in the flames with us? And in those moments when we feel like we're most alone, when instinctively we feel like everything's gone wrong, I mean, getting chucked into a furnace that's seven times hotter than normal people get cremated in is not a good start to the day. When it feels like everything in earthly terms has gone wrong, do you know? That he's with you at the heart of the heat, in the center of it all, that he's there. Because that's his gift. And it's at those times when he's really there and we don't notice that we miss out on that greatest gift. The footprints thing, you know, we've seen it everywhere. And and the, the single footprints. Why did you leave me at the toughest place? That's our human perception, isn't it? Why have you abandoned me here? No, 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 I was carrying you, mate, when you were there. For some of us today, there's a challenge about what God wants to do in our workplace or out in the world somewhere. There's a challenge about standing up for him. There's a challenge about pushing through with what we know is right and forget about what's reasonable, knowing that we can trust God with every single outcome. And for some of us today, it's to know that he's right with you. He's right with you, even as the heat is turned up. He's there. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. Never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray.